Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 12 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together this morning. Last week, we wrapped up our discussion of Hebrews chapter 11. I really think that in years to come, uh, we will look back on the last few months in Hebrews chapter 11 as important for our individual walks with the Lord and as important for the life of this local church. In particular, last week, we tried to remember all of those stories from the Old Testament. All of those stories from the Old Testament of men and women who lived by faith as an example for us. We tried to see them as an example of what living by faith really looks like. And last week we talked about how approval from God always comes by faith. It has always come by faith. And approval from God has only come by faith. There's not another route. This has always been the way it works, and this is only the way it works. There is no other way to find approval in the eyes of God than by trusting, than by believing in Him and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked also about how the faith that was commended in Hebrews chapter 11, all of these men and women from the Old Testament, their faith was active faith. It wasn't passive faith. It's not as if these men and women are commended to us as examples because they merely made a profession of faith and then sat back and did nothing. Rather, these men and women were active in their faith. And we said this last week, that if your faith is completely invisible and internal, then your faith is probably not saving faith. That the kind of faith that saves is faith that produces obvious fruit of faith. We looked over and over again in Hebrews chapter 11 at this definition of faith that's given to us by George Guthrie when he says this, Faith is confidence that results in action carried out in a variety of situations by ordinary people in response to the unseen God and his promises with various earthly outcomes, but always the ultimate outcome of God's commendation and reward. And we saw that Guthrie is on the right track when we look at Hebrews 11 as a whole. That is exactly what faith looks like. And that's what our faith should look like as well. We want to have confidence. And we want that confidence to lead us to action. Because we are ordinary people who have extraordinary promises from God. Well, this week, we're going to move on. But we won't leave chapter 11 behind. In fact, what we'll see this week is really the pastoral application of all of Hebrews chapter 11. All of these examples from the Old Testament that we have seen. And what I want you to remember before we read it is that this author is writing to a group of people who want to quit. They want to give up. They're ready to throw in the towel. They are ready to just quit running. And he is speaking to them to try to encourage them not to quit, not to give up, to keep on running. And you'll see the illustration that he uses this week as we read together in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And really, and, and I, really verses 1 to 3 are a whole section, so we'll read that today. And I had intended to preach verses 1 and 2, but we're only going to get through verse 1 today. There's just so much good stuff here um, that it's going to take us several weeks to get through all of this. This is what God's Word says. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, 
For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray together. Father, we, we don't want to grow weary, and we don't want to lose heart. We want to run with endurance the race you've marked out for us. And we thank you for all of the provisions you've given to us so that we can run, so that we can run well, so that we can finish well. And we pray that, that you'll sustain us as we run this race of faith. And God, I especially want to pray for men and women, boys and girls who are in this room today who are tired, they're broken, they're discouraged, and they want to give up. They want to quit running. God, I pray today that by your spirit and through your word, you'll encourage them to keep running, that you'll use us to encourage them to keep running, that no one will quit, that no one will give up, that no one will turn around and go home. Father, we want to see this through to the finish, and we believe you will bring us home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. And there's, there is some good stuff here. And I don't know if it's just because I have an interest in running that this particularly speaks to me. And, and so I recognize that today, that maybe part of my interest in running is why this text comes alive to me. And it might not come alive for you in the same way. But what I want you to, what I want you to recognize is that there is a strong likelihood that not everybody in this little church that this letter was originally written to was a marathoner. Like, it's probably not the case that all of them were going out on the weekends and running miles and miles and miles. Probably a lot of these folks weren't interested in running at all, but they understood the concept. And so whether you like to run or not, you can understand this concept, the illustration that he is trying to use. So notice in verse 1, he starts out by saying, therefore... And this is always an important word. And we don't want to overlook it. We don't want to treat it as if it's insignificant. It's always an important word. And it shows us that what is about to be said is deeply rooted and closely connected to what has already been said. So it's like the author of Hebrews is just taking the next step in the argument. He laid out all of these Old Testament examples, almost countless Old Testament examples. And now he's taking the next step to build upon that foundation that he has laid in Hebrews chapter 11. This is the pastoral application of the whole example list. And for the last uh, 13 weeks, I've been trying to make pastoral applications at the end of every week, but we've been driving always toward this ultimate pastoral application that the author of Hebrews gives himself uh, to the people. And so this is built on what we have seen for the last several weeks. Notice also, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, before we unpack that a little bit, what I need to tell you is that the main imperative the most important command in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, is let us run. That's ultimately what he's calling the people to. Ultimately, what he's trying to say to them is let's 
run. Let's run together. And every other clause in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, is simply modifying and supporting that main imperative, that main command of let us run. So when we talk about this great cloud of witnesses, you need to have it fixed in your mind that that is helping us to run that the great cloud of witnesses is there so that we will run. And when we talk about throwing off sin and encumbrances, all of that is to help us run. The main call to action today is let's run. So we're not going to drive our cars home today. <laughs> right? We're going to let the parking lot will be full all day and people will be driving by thinking, man, First Baptist, just go all day today. No, we all ran home. That's the deal, right? No, that's... It's not, not exactly where we're trying to go with this. But the main imperative is let us run. Notice he says there's a great cloud of witnesses. There's a great cloud of witnesses. And certainly that group includes all of those people we've studied about in Hebrews chapter 11. It includes Joshua and Moses and Abraham and Noah and Rahab and the guy that got sawed in two and all of these people. It includes all of those folks. But I am confident that it is not limited only to the people who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. I believe that this great cloud of witnesses also includes men and women who are not mentioned, but who also lived by faith. And maybe there's a bit of application there, that not everyone who lives faithfully in their life gets, gets their name printed in the book. Not, not everyone who lives by faith and has radical, bold, courageous trust in the Lord Jesus gets a lot of press. Some of them are known only to the people in their little community. Some of them are known only to the people in their little neighborhood. But nonetheless, they are exemplary, faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this great cloud of witnesses includes a whole lot of people who have lived by faith. And there's a little bit of debate amongst biblical scholars about what it means that they are witnesses. That word witness is pretty significant. And there's one camp that would say that these faithful followers are simply watching us run. That they are spectators who are watching us run the race. And this seems to be a valid point. As the author clearly is using the language of athletic competition... In fact, even the idea that we are surrounded by these witnesses helps us get the picture of people uh, in a coliseum or in a stadium gathered together to watch athletes perform, to watch athletes run around the track. And they would have been, they would have been very familiar. This would have been as much a part of their popular culture as it is ours today. Sports were a big deal in ancient times, just like they are today. And so it gives us this idea of being surrounded by people who are watching us run. And so maybe it is that Moses and Abraham and Rahab and Joshua are watching us as we run this race of faith. In fact, one scholar kind of talked about this in poetic uh, form, and he talked about, imagine, imagine Moses stroking his beard as you run your race and imagine Rahab giving a royal wave and a wink of her eye as you circle the track and just just try to think about that that these faithful followers are watching us run what will that do to you what will that do to you if you know that they are watching you run it'll make you run better right It'll make you run harder. It'll make you run faster. I know I struggle with that in my own life. When I go out for a run and I go all by myself, I am prone to quit. 
I am prone to quit and walk, which is why a lot of times I want to run into town. Because if I run out in the country, nobody will see me. <laughs> nobody will see me, and I want to quit. But if I'm running through town and I start walking, somebody's going to see me, and somebody's going to say, I saw you out the other day walking. Right? The point is, when people are observing us, and when we know important people are observing us, we are likely to perform at the best of our ability. Fair enough? I loved it that as I was studying this week, Charles Spurgeon even identifies with this. And Spurgeon was not, if you know anything about him, not the uh, uh, epitome of health and fitness uh, in his life. But he even said at one point, I think this will be on the board, it was no excitement to run if there are no onlookers, right? Nobody wants to run if nobody's watching. That's why we want to run races, and we don't just want to train. And so it may be that these witnesses are simply spectators in the stands watching us run, and I think that's a valid point. But there's another camp that would say that these witnesses, they're not just witnesses in the sense that they're observing us, but that they are testifying, because that's what witnesses do. They don't just observe, they testify, they speak truth. And maybe it is that these witnesses are saying to us, it can be done. The race can be finished. I did it, so can you. And so maybe, uh, maybe that's the way we need to see these guys. And that seems to be valid as well. For all of these faithful people have finished the race. They have run with faith and now they serve as an encouragement to us. So I guess at the end of the day, the question is, which is it? Which is it? Are these faithful ones who have gone before us simply watching us from the stands? Or are they testifying to us that this can be done? The race can be finished. I did it, and so can you. And I think the answer really for, for me, and I think the reasonable answer is, it's both. It's both of those things. These people like Moses and Abraham and Rahab and Joshua and all these others, they have finished the race... And now they have gone to the stands and they are cheering us on as people who have experienced what we experience. It's as if they are saying, don't give up. I've, I know the pain you're in. It's almost as if Moses, Moses can say, I know what it's like to feel inadequate. I know what it's like to feel discouraged. I know what it's like to want to throw the talent, but don't quit. You can finish this race. I know it because I finished it as well. And when I think about that, when I think about that picture of all of these faithful ones, not only watching us run, but cheering us on as people who have experienced what we experience, man, that makes me encouraged to run a little better. Doesn't it you? I think that's the picture we need to have, that it is both. Men and women who've already finished the race join the cheering crowd, not only to watch us run, but to cheer us on as people who have finished the race, already experienced the pain already faced the despair, and they didn't give up. And so they encourage us not to give up. In other words, the well-run race of saints who have gone before should serve as motivation for us to keep running even when things get hard. The fact that these people have finished the race should encourage us to keep going as well. And maybe on a lighter note, I have often thought when I enter a race, if so-and-so can do it, Surely I can, right? That we look at these people who have finished a race before and we say, if they can do it, there's hope for me too. 
if they can run well with their background and their baggage, then I can finish the race with my background and my baggage as well. There is encouragement in the example of these believers who've gone before us. So he says, big idea, let's run. And he says, as you're running, recognize you've got a great cloud of witnesses surrounding you. And he also says this in the next phrase. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. This is a huge part of the exhortation to run. This is a huge part of running well is laying aside encumbrances and sins that tangle us up. Now, before I started running, I thought those guys in their short shorts and their tank tops or maybe even their no tops were pretty ridiculous. And maybe, maybe sometimes you drive down the road and you see somebody over on the bike trail and you think, man, he needs some longer shorts. <laughs> maybe you've seen me and thought, man, he needs some longer shorts. And even, I'll tell you this, even when I started running, I wore some long basketball shorts that were baggy and maybe a baggy shirt and those kind of things. And in fact, if you were to look in the drawer of running gear at my house, you can see the evolution of my running career. Um, <clears throat> you can see uh, the oldest shorts I've got, which are almost knee length. And then as I've run further and further and further, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story uh, this week. I have one pair of shorts that uh, we refer to them as PG-13 uh, shorts. And I usually only wear them uh, in the house on the treadmill where no one is, is ever going to see me. But th this week, just this weekend, I did a run in the house on the treadmill in those shorts. And then I needed to go get something for my brother's house. And so Laura said, why don't you just run up there and, and get it? You're already sweaty and nasty. Why don't you just run up there? And I looked down and I said, in these? She was like, yeah, it's just half a mile. Nobody will even see you. And so I took off and I thought, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. <laughs> please, please don't let me run into anybody I see because those things are super short. But here's the deal. Here's the point of all this. Um, I have learned as I run that the less you can get tangled up with clothes, the better you can run. And I've also recognized that when I thought that was ridiculous, I had no experience in it. And I think you'll catch some of the same kind of stuff. If you're not interested in running the race of faith, some of the stuff that people are doing who are committed to run it may seem ridiculous. You may look from the outside and say, that's crazy what he is doing. That's crazy the way he's living. But maybe you say it's crazy because you don't know what it looks like to run. And maybe you are running. Maybe you're serious about it. And you're shedding off encumbrances and sins all over the place. And your friends are saying, dude, you look ridiculous. And you might need to look at them and say, yeah, but I'm running well. I may, I may look ridiculous to you, but this is what a real runner looks like. Make sense? So uh, what I want to say also is that this progression of shorts that get shorter and shorter was, is modest compared to ancient Greek athletes and their running. Because, because if, you think, if you think that my shorts or whoever's shorts are short, these guys didn't even wear shorts. <laughs> like when they ran, they, they took off all the encumbrances uh, to, to run their race. So uh, in my notes I said, uh, now that you have that picture, maybe a terrible one uh, that you wish you could unsee in your head, let's look at the particulars of the text. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, let us also. That is significant. That he says, let us also lay aside encumbrances and sins which tangle you up. Because it implies that those, the cloud of witnesses 
The faithful ones who have gone before, they did this. They laid aside encumbrances. They set aside sins. They were in the business of stripping down so that they could run well. They were in the business of making sure nothing tangled them up and held them back. This is the way they ran and they finished. And so he says to you and I, let's also do that. Let us also be about running that way. Notice what he says next when he says, let us also lay aside. That's the New American Standard translation of the phrase. And it is too mild, I would say. The picture I get when I read New American Standard is, let's uh, take off gently and fold up neatly uh, these things that are holding us back and let's set them aside very gently and very carefully. It may be better to translate that. In fact, other translations do translate that word as cast off or throw off every sin and encumbrance that would tangle us up. So it's a more violent and aggressive picture. I remember the first time first time I ran a marathon uh, was in Chicago, and it was cold before the start. And you had to get to the start line like an hour and a half before the race actually started. And so people would come to the start line wearing old, nasty sweatshirts and sweatpants. And one guy, I remember, uh, had socks on his hands, like old tube socks on his hands. And I thought, that's ridiculous. Why do you have socks on your hands? And then I realized what he was going to do. Because as we stood there waiting for the race to start, we were cold and we were shivering. But when they, when they fired the gun and 40,000 people started heading toward the start line, what I saw were T-shirts, sweatshirts, tube socks flying all over the place. Because we're not going to run in that stuff, but we need that stuff now to keep us warm. And they were throwing it off and literally throwing it as far as they could to get it out of the course onto the sideline. And so when I read this text now, that's the picture I want to have. That's the experience that I want to have is I'm not taking off encumbrances and folding them up neatly and putting them in the drawer for later. That I'm not taking them off gently and treating them with great care, but I'm taking them off and throwing them away because I don't ever want them back. That's the idea. When you wear the old sweatshirt to the start line of a race, you're never getting that sweatshirt back. You are throwing it away never to see it again because you've got a race to run. That's the way I want to treat this stuff in my life. And I don't. So often, I don't. So he says, let's, let's lay it aside. Let's cast it off. Let's throw it off. This reminds me of Jesus in the Gospels when he talks about cutting off your hand. He, he says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, oh, just, just give it a good stern talking to, right? Tell it not to do that anymore. No, if your right hand causes you to stumble, what's Jesus say? Cut it off. And throw it far from you, right? It's the same idea. Cut it off and throw it far from you. If your eye causes you to stumble, what's he say to do? Put a patch over it? No, he says gouge it out and throw it far from you. That's the idea. There is, a, there is a violence to this. There is an aggressiveness to this. And as I shed things that might hold me back as I run the race of faith, I want to have that kind of violence. I want to have that kind of aggression. I want to be throwing stuff way far away so that I won't have to deal with it anymore as I run the race of faith. So he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. This is really interesting. And it is potentially life-changing because we understand the idea of I need to get rid of sin as I run the race of faith. But the author of Hebrews first mentions every encumbrance, every encumbrance and also sin that tangles us up, but every encumbrance. I love what John Piper said when he talked about this. He says, 
This is not on the board. You'll just have to listen to me. He says, I remember the effect this verse had on me as a boy. When I heard someone explain that we must lay aside not only entangling sins, but every encumbrance. That is every weight or obstacle. Things that in themselves may not be sins. This was revolutionary. What it did and what I hope it does for you was show me that the fight of faith, the race of the Christian life, is not fought well or run well by asking, what's wrong with this or that? That's the question we often ask is, what's wrong with this or that? He says the better question is asking, is it in the way? Is it in the way of greater faith, greater love, greater purity, greater courage, greater humility, greater patience, greater self-control? Not, is it sin, but does it help me run? Is it in the way? He says, as a boy, I was mightily helped by having my very categories changed in the way I lived my life. I commend it to you, young people especially. Don't ask about your music, your movies, your parties, your habits. What's wrong with it? Ask, does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? You see what's going on there? There may be some things in your life that are not sinful things in and of themselves. In fact, there are some things in your life that may be very good things, but they're encumbering you. They're holding you back. And they're not helping you run. And so there are some of us that need to recognize that and cast off some of those even good things that are slowing us down and that are not helping us run. R. Kent Hughes says it differently. This will be on the board when he says, Not all hindrances or weights, encumbrances, are sin. However, in fact, what is a hindrance to you may not be a hindrance in any way to someone else. A hindrance is something otherwise good that weighs you down spiritually. It could be a friendship, an association, an event, a place, a habit, a pleasure, an entertainment, an honor. But if this otherwise good thing drags you down, you must strip it away. This is challenging stuff, is it not? Because I think we live in a culture that, that, that pads on all kinds of good things, good things that are not helping us run, maybe even good things that are slowing us down and hindering us from running the race of faith. So the question is, what are those things in your life? What are those things that may be good things, not necessarily sinful things, maybe good things, but things that are slowing you down and keeping you from running well? And have you ever considered that those things need to be shed in the race of faith as well? So he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now it makes sense that if we're going to throw off these other things that may in themselves not be bad things, but are nonetheless slowing us down, then we would certainly be throwing off sin, right? I want you to hear clearly that you cannot think that you can run the race of faith well if you are all tangled up in sin. Don't expect to excel in the race of faith if your feet are all tangled up in sin. And notice also in this text, he says, the sin which so easily entangles us. Some older translations talk about besetting sins here. And what I want us to recognize is that all of us have areas of sin that we are more prone to than others. 
All of us have areas of sin that we are more prone to than others. And when we recognize those things, the things that so easily tangle us up, we need to stay far, far away from those things. And we need to throw them far, far away from us. We need to be very careful with those areas. So my question for you is, do you know what those areas are for you? Do you know what the areas of easily entangling sin are for you? If you don't, ask your wife. She will know what those areas are for you. We need to be very careful with those things that, are, that so easily tangle us up. So remember, he says, the main imperative is let us run. Right, And he says, you've got this cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on as people who have also run the race and finished it. And he says, as you run, you got to shed some weight. you got to get rid of some of that stuff that's slowing you down. You need to be asking yourself, does this help me run? Is this a tangling sin? And if it is, throw it away. Cast it off. Get rid of it so that you can run well. And then, and then he gets to the main imperative when he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is the main imperative, let us run. And Paul uses this same concept in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This will be on the board. When he's talking about the end of his life, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think as I read through the New Testament and I see the images that the Christian life is compared to, I don't see images that are easy. I don't see images that are just cruising. What I see are images that are gritty, and dirty and sweaty. The Christian life is compared to a war. The Christian life is compared to a fight. The Christian life is compared to a race. What I'm getting at here is that this race is not easy. We're not talking about a Sunday stroll here. We're not talking about a drive with grandma through the country on the perfect day. If you're going to walk with Jesus, Jesus himself says, take up the cross and follow me down the hard road. Right? So the Christian life is not an easy life, but it's totally worth it. It's totally worth the sweat and the tears and the blood that may be shed in the process of following Jesus because there is a great reward at the end of this race. And so he says, let's run. Let's run. And running will make you sweat. And running takes effort. And I believe there are some people, honestly, who are not interested in that. No, I'm not, I don't even mean on the physical side. I hear that all the time. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to spend your Saturday morning running, getting sweaty and nasty and tired? Why would you want to do that? I'm saying that there are people who are not interested in that spiritually. I don't want to think. I don't want to work. I don't want to try. I don't want to sweat. I'm not, if, that's, if that's what it looks like to follow after Jesus, I don't want anything to do with it. Now, let me clarify when we're talking about this, we're talking about what it looks like to follow after Jesus. We're talking about what the life of a Christian looks like, not what it is to become a Christian. You don't sweat to become a Christian. You don't bleed to become a Christian. Jesus sweat. Jesus bled so that you could become a Christian. Amen? Right? It's about his work. 
But when we are following him, we are not passive. We are not passive in our sanctification like we are passive in our justification. We don't just sit back and do nothing as we follow him. No, we engage our will, we engage our energy, we engage our effort, and we follow him. And the best news of all is we're not on our own as we do that. It's not purely our effort. It's not solely our will and our energy. It is the spirit enabling and working with us as we, as we follow him as disciples of Christ. But some people aren't interested in that. They want a sanctification that is passive like their justification was passive. They want to just sit back in the back seat of the car and let Jesus drive us home to heaven. That's not what I see when I read the New Testament. What I see is Paul in particular talking about fighting, running, racing. Here's the point. It's going to take some sweat. It's going to take some energy. And you're going to get tired. That's what the race looks like. Are you interested in that? If you're not interested in that, I don't know that you're interested in the gospel. I don't know that you're interested in discipleship. So he says, let us run. Notice also he says, let us run with endurance. In other words, that's teaching us that this is not a short race. This is a long race. It's not 100 meters. It may not even be a marathon. It may be hundreds of miles of racing that we are involved with. And so therefore, we don't want to run like Usain Bolt. Do you guys know who that is? He's the fastest man on the planet. And I read an article this week that says he has never run a mile straight. He's run lots of miles, 100 meters at a time, 200 meters at a time, but he's never run a mile straight. That's not the kind of running we're looking at here. We're talking about running that takes endurance. We're talking about a long course here. That's exactly the way it's described in Hebrews chapter 12. N.T. Wright says it like this. This is good stuff. He says, there are always some runners who really prefer prefer a short sprint. Some of them, faced with a 10-mile run, will go far too fast at the start and then be exhausted after two or three miles. Sadly, many of us know Christians like that too. Keen and eager in their early days, they run out of steam by the time they reach mature adulthood. Give me the person any day who starts a bit more slowly but who is still there patiently running the next mile and the next mile and the next mile all those years later. And and I want to say there's some of those folks in this room today who have been patiently running mile after mile after mile. And man, we need, to, we need to pick those people out and look at them and say, that guy is getting closer to the finish line and he's not giving up. And that's the way I want to run this race as well. It's a race of endurance. It's a race of patience. John MacArthur says it a little bit differently when he identifies endurance as the steady determination to keep going regardless of the temptation to slow down or give up. Did these people have a temptation to slow down or give up? Absolutely they did. That's the whole reason why this book was written, to say don't slow down, don't give up, run all the way to the finish line. So he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is interesting to me because it teaches us that we don't get to set the course. We don't get to pick the course of the race that we're going to run. If we did, we'd pick flat and straight, right? If I was going to pick a course to run an endurance race, I'd want it to be as flat as possible and as straight as possible. But we don't get to set the course. We run the race that is set for us. 
And some of our races are really difficult. Really difficult. Joe's saying, I'd rather run downhill. I see it. Yeah, maybe. That's, that's hard too sometimes though. Some of our courses that are set for us go through the mountains and the valleys and the rocks. Some of the courses that are set for us go through the desert places. Some of the courses we have to run are really, really hard. But we run the race that is set before us. We, we recognize here we don't get to pick the course. We recognize also in the author of Hebrews saying this, that there's a clear start and a clear finish. It's a course that's set. There's a start line and a finish line. We're not just wandering around till we get tired. No, there is a definite start and a definite finish. And some of us are closer to the finish line than others. Like I'm thinking about some, some people in this room who have been running well for a long time. And just by, just by science or nature or whatever you want to call it, they're close to the finish line. And I want to say if you're one of those guys or gals, keep running well all the way to the finish line. But I also want to recognize in this room, there are some young people who are closer to the finish line than they even know. Your, your finish, finish line might not come when you're 80. It may come when you're 23. We're experiencing that right now with some friends of ours. They weren't expecting the race to finish that quickly for him. But it has. And you don't get to mark the course. You don't get to mark the start line or the finish line. But there's a course set for each of us. So let's run it well. Let's run it well. Let's run it as if the finish line was just up ahead. Because it may well be just up ahead. And I don't want to be caught walking at the finish line, do you? Like, that'd be the worst place to walk, wouldn't it? I want to be running, especially at the finish line. So, there's a clear start and there's a clear finish. And we must be running all the way to the end. So, look what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We've studied all of that today. But notice what he says in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to look very closely at that next week. But even this week, let's not overlook the importance of staying focused on Jesus as we run this race. Like as we are running this marathon race of faith, sure, we're thankful for the great cloud of witnesses. Sure, we're looking at ourselves and saying, what things do I need to get rid of that are slowing me down and what sins are easily tangling me up? We need to be looking at those things, but we also need to be looking at Jesus, who is ultimately the trailblazer for us. He is ultimately the one who has run the race and finished well and now invites us to finish well also. So that's what we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about what it looks like to fix our eyes on Jesus. So there are three applications, I think, today from verse 1. Number one, be encouraged that other people have run this race. Be encouraged that there are others who have finished this race, and now they stand by encouraging us. So my question for you is, who are those witnesses in your life? And I think there are three categories of them, maybe four categories of them. Who are the Old Testament witnesses that are especially encouraging to you? 
Like as we read through Hebrews chapter 11, all of it last week, who are the people that stand out to you as the stories that really get you going and, and help you run the race well? Who are those Old Testament saints that help, help you run well? And then who are the New Testament saints that help you run well? Like let's think about all these characters in the New Testament who ran the race of faith well and finished well. Who are the ones that encourage you most? Can you think of some? Maybe it's Peter with all of his ups and downs. Maybe it's John with his long-term faithfulness. Maybe it's Stephen who right out of the gate gets stoned to death but doesn't, doesn't flinch at all. Who are those New Testament saints that encourage you to run well? Maybe the third category is who are those people from the history of the church? Who are those believers who have already gone on to heaven who encourage you? Read some Christian biography and be encouraged by the faithfulness of men and women who have gone before who are now in the stands cheering you on saying, you can do this because I did it before you and I'm with you in all of this. Who are those uh, saints from church history that are helping you run? And then the fourth category is who are the people in your life that are ahead of you in the race who are helping you run? Like, who are the people in this room who are helping you run the race well, who are saying, maybe, maybe they're a little bit further ahead of you in the race. And you're like seeing them off in a distance, but knowing that they're out there is helping you run where you're at today. Who are those people? God has provided them for us. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's tear off the sin and let's run with endurance. So who are those witnesses in your life and are you thankful to God for them? Number two, what are the things that you need to throw off in order to run well? And there are two categories of these. What are the encumbrances? Young, young people especially listen to this. What are the encumbrances that you need to get rid of so that you can run the race well? What are the things that are a huge distraction for you, keeping you from running well? Maybe, maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's some relationship. Maybe it's some dream that you have. Maybe it's some hobby or sport that you're involved with. Are there things that may be good things, but they're not helping you run with Jesus? What are those things that need to be thrown aside so that you can run well? And listen, this is not just a word for young people. This is a word for all of us. We all have those kind of encumbrances that are weighing us down and keeping us from running, and we need to throw them off. And people will think we're weird, when we do it, people will think we're weird. They're going to look at us the way people look at me in the PG-13 shorts. Like, what? Why? Why? I'm telling you, only someone who isn't interested in running asks questions like that. Other people who are interested in running well will say, I get it, short shorts, we all do it. I get it. And that's the way we want to be with each other, right? Right? So what are the encumbrances and what are the easily entangling sins in your life? We should be able to recognize those on our own, but often we're blind. We're blind to those things that we're so prone to. We're blind because of the enemy. We're blind because of our own pride. And so maybe we need to open ourselves up and say, hey, help me. Over the next two weeks, help me identify what are those things that I easily get tangled up in. Help me so that I can cast them off. Help me so that I can throw them away. Help me so that I can rid myself of them and run the race well. What are the things that you need to throw off in order to run? What are the encumbrances and what are the sins that so easily entangle you? And third, let's run with endurance 
all the way to the end. I want to be sensitive in this to say that there are some people in this room who are ready to give up. They're ready to quit. They're ready to turn around and walk home. First, when we first moved up here, um, my brother and a group of his buddies were running all the time. And I thought, well, I've got to do that. I've got to join them in that. And I remember the very first morning I met them at the crack of dawn. And I was ready to go in my basketball shorts, baggy shorts. And I took off running. And we got a mile down the road. And I thought I was going to die. And I threw up. And I walked home. That's how my race went, first day. And I recognize there are some of you that are in that boat right now. Like, you're ready to quit. You're ready to quit the race of faith. Life is hard. Nothing seems to be going your way. And you're ready to quit and turn around and go home, go back to the old life. That's exactly what these people were dealing with. If you are one of those people, hear me clearly. You need to look back to those who have finished the course already and be encouraged by their witness. You need to look around in this room at people who are running strong and be encouraged to run along with them. And you need to look up to Jesus, who is ultimately our example, who is ultimately the forerunner, who is ultimately the one who empowers us as we run. We need to look back and we need to look around and we need to look up and we need to keep running. Keep running because there is a reward at the finish. There is a reward at the finish and it's better than some silly t-shirt and a crummy medal. There is a reward at the finish of this race that all of us want to experience, right? And you don't experience it if you give up. So don't give up. Keep running. Keep looking around. Keep looking up. And keep running by the grace of God for his glory. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we're thankful today that we don't work ourselves into your kingdom, into your family. That we don't produce by our sweat and tears right standing before you. We are thankful that Jesus has done the sweating and the bleeding to bring us into the family. To reconcile us to you. To make us your children. I pray for men and women boys and girls in this room who are outside of the family, they're not, they're not part of the covenant people of God. I pray that today you'll show them the glory of Christ on the cross dying in their place and their need for forgiveness and their need for justification, cleansing. And God, I pray that their response will be to repent of sins and trust in Christ today. And God, I also pray for men and women and boys and girls who are in this room who are part of your family, who have been adopted by grace through faith. I pray that you help us to run with endurance the race you've marked out for us, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would consider the great cloud of witnesses, that we'd be throwing off every encumbrance and sin that weighs us down, and that we would run with endurance the race that you've set for us, that we would sweat and bleed as we follow after you. Father, I pray that you forgive us when we just want to sit back and coast. I pray that you spur us on to love and good deeds, faithful living, courageous obedience, 
to running and running well. Father, help us to wrestle with these questions that we've talked about today. Who are our witnesses? What are the encumbrances? What are the sins that tangle us up? Help us to deal with those things in your presence, according to your word and will. And grow us in the faith. In Christ's name we pray.